Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them and turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, verses 5 and 6 will be our text. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We'll read those in just a minute. I want to welcome every single one of you here this morning on a snowy day. It was February of 2011. Um, Wendy and I had flown up here. We were actually meeting with the search uh, team, the search committee at that point, in, in what is now the youth room. And as we were sitting there, a bad snowstorm um, had started to brew that particular afternoon, which prompted me to ask the question, um, so what do you guys do like if there is a snowstorm on a Sunday morning? This was the response. Who shows up, shows up. And I thought, you know what, I'm in. I like these people. I like that idea. We never canceled church. So it might be, I talked to Wendy this morning, like, well, it'll be you and I there for sure. You guys showed up. So praise God for that. February is oft referred to as the darkest month of the year. Therefore, I think it is appropriate that our subject this morning is on the brightest. Our subject this morning is on the greatest of of all times, and that is the subject of Jesus. Jesus the Christ, as we continue on in our series, I refer to as the five solos. Would you bow your head first and foremost, pray with me as we commit our time to the Lord and ask for him to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, again, we are grateful. You've graced us with another day, a snowy day, and we thank you for every person that is here and for bringing us safely together. I pray, Lord, as we have a few moments now with your word opened up before us that we would all hear a word from you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the sacrifice that was made, the price that was paid on our behalf. All of our attention now, we want to to focus on you and you alone. I, I pray for people that perhaps are here this morning and their minds are just swirling. God, I would ask that um, as you as you speak and the storms and the seas are calm that you would speak and you would calm hearts that perhaps are at unrest. Father, please um, guide me in my words. May everything that is said and done be for your glory and yours alone. We love you. I love you and I thank you for loving us. We ask this in the strong and powerful name of our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. Amen and amen. Okay, uh, five solos, what are they? By way of very, very brief review, they are, in a sense, uh, a summary of five theological pillars, doctrines that emerged um, some 500 years ago um, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, distinguishing false doctrine, bad theology that was being taught by the loudest voice of that day, the Roman Catholic Church, Um, an accurate biblical truth. They explain, in essence, the fullness 
of what salvation is. We talked about the fact that salvation is according to Scripture alone. It says in Psalm 19, verse 1, that the law of the Lord is perfect. We want to make it absolutely clear that all of our confidence and authority as a local church is based solely upon the Word of God. Everything else, everything else is secondary to Scripture. Looked at the fact that salvation is by grace alone, or sola gratia. Grace means unmerited favor. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Praise God that the hope of eternal life in heaven, the hope of forgiveness of our sin, does not rest in our merits, or we would all be in grave trouble. Last week, we looked at the fact that salvation is through faith alone. Sola fide, it says in Romans chapter 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. When we speak about faith alone, we're speaking about the doctrine of justification. Justification is God's definitive declaration in his courtroom. If you have put your faith in the finished work of Christ, then what? Then God declares you justified, just, righteous, right in his sight. Today we look at what is referred to as solus Christus. It means in Christ alone. I direct your attention to Paul's words that he wrote to young Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Direct your attention to verses 5 and 6. God's word speaks to our hearts with this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. If you recall, going back to our start, that there was a question This was the question that was so unsettled by those reformers 500 plus years ago. The question is this, how can a perfectly holy, righteous God be in relationship with or have relationship with us who are perfectly wicked, sinful men? The, 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 the perplexing problem was that they realized that that relationship was not going to happen by obeying a long list of sacraments. Do this and don't do this, according to what the church at that time was teaching. What happened is that there was great confusion around what actually is the gospel. Understand this, that the gospel was and the gospel is very clear and it's very simple. Confusion comes in people's minds. There's clouds when people try to add to the gospel. We know that the truth is what? Salvation comes by having faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone, not in the faith of any work that man can do. So, so we understand truth is having faith in the finished work of Christ alone. How is it that we have such confidence with that particular statement, with that particular, because some guy nailed something on the door 500 years ago? Absolutely not. They were good guys, no doubt. 
But we have confidence, we have authority in that truth because what? God the Holy Spirit spoke. He spoke to a select few who wrote down his word, which what? Today comprised the scriptures or the Bible, the Holy Bible. One of those men was a man whose name was the Apostle Paul. Originally, he was born, his, his name was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew. He was a Jewish religious leader. He was a Pharisee. Saul had one purpose in his life as a Pharisee. He hated Christ. He hated the church. And so his, his goal was to seek out Christians, to kill them and destroy the church. But God did an absolutely amazing work literally capturing his soul, converting him and conforming him unto himself and ultimately using Saul who becomes Paul greatly for the glory of God. Now, how did this happen? Because because Paul met Christ alone on the road to Damascus. He was actually en route to cause and wreak havoc against the church. And God God revealed himself to him and radically and dramatically changed his heart, his life, his direction. He becomes a writer of many of the epistles. He he becomes a preacher. He becomes a church planter. He becomes a missionary who, as he is journeying around, literally, he is making disciples, just like you and I are called to do. He pours his life into the life of younger followers of Jesus. One of those men was named Timotheus, or Timothy. Timothy was from Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey today. His father was Greek. We know that his mother was Jewish. Apparently, it seems that his father may have died when Timothy was relatively young because it was through the influence of his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, that Timothy actually gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ and put his faith in Jesus. Paul was on his second missionary journey. It's explained in Acts chapter 16. When Paul was in Lystra, he met Timothy, and Paul just fell in love with young Timothy's heart for the gospel. And he wanted Timothy to minister alongside of him. And he took Timothy with him, literally, follow me as I follow Jesus. Paul um, left Timothy to shepherd a particular church in Ephesus that Paul had planted earlier. And after a period of time, there oftentimes what happens is bad teaching, bad doctrine, bad theology had crept into the church at Ephesus. So what happens is that Paul actually writes a letter to Timothy as he's in Ephesus shepherding this flock. And this is the letter that he, that you have opened before you. Bad bad teaching had erupted. And so Paul writes, he says, Timothy, I want you to return to the truth. I want you to return to the gospel. He begins in chapter one and he kind of tells and touches on his own story. As Paul's writing this, he, he talks about the fact in verse 13, I was a blasphemer. He says, I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. It says this, but I received Mercy, because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul uses his own example. He says, Timothy, get them back to the truth. Get them back to the full gospel. In chapter two, Paul teaches, he says, Timothy, I want you to pray for all people. God desires that all people are to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. And then he explains, well, what is that truth? And that's the text that we read this morning in 1 Timothy chapter two, verse five. He says this, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. It's the man, Christ Jesus, in total contradiction, opposition to the polytheistic influence that were prominent in that day. Paul begins and he says, people are worshiping stones and rocks and they're worshiping the sun and the river, they're worshiping everything. And Paul says, there's one God. And yet even what sinful men can have relationship with that one holy God because there is one mediator. Make sure you take them to Christ. Get them to the cross. There's one who stands in between a holy God and sinful man. He mediates. The word is defined as this, to help opposing sides in a dispute come to an agreement. To bring about a settlement. I appreciate as I was reading and studying this week, Matthew Henry's comment on this particular um, verse, on this particular phrase, but this particular word, mediator. Matthew Henry says this, a mediator supposes a controversy. Stop right there. Some people say, wait a minute, controversy. Controversy means a conflict. I have heard many people make this statement. I don't have a problem with God. Many people have said, yeah, I don't have, like, I'm not, a, I'm not in controversy with God. I'm not going to have conflict with God. If you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this. You can write this down. Apart from Christ, God has a problem with you. You understand that? Many people are like, I don't, like, I don't have a problem with God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Apart from Christ, God has a massive problem with you. What is that? Matthew Henry continues on. He says, sin had made a quarrel between us and God. Jesus Christ is a mediator who undertakes to make peace, to bring God and man together in the nature of an umpire or an arbitrator. And he uses this definition by way of helping us under, understand what a, a mediator is. He says, a man who lays his hand upon both of us. Th- think of that. One who's in the middle, who has what his hand on the head of two who are in conflict. I don't know if this is the best example or not. Best I could come up with is this. You ever been in a fight before? like a fight, like a fist fight. Some of you were nodding your heads. And I remember it goes back, it goes back sometime. One of the first ones that I really clearly remember, I was probably in fifth grade. I was on the playground 
And it was actually one of my best friends, one of my closest friends at the time, Tony Belzer. And he was being like, he was being a bit of a bully. And it started because there was a girl in the swing set. He wanted to sit on the swing set and swing. And so he literally just pushed her off. And I was playing good guy. I was like, wait, man, you don't do that. And he punched me in the face. I was bleeding right here in the upper part of my right lip. And so what did I do? I punched him back in the face. Now, now you don't have two kids slugging down the playground before what happens automatically. Some teacher finds out and we get taken into the principal's office to meet with, with our principal, Mr. Wilson Baker. I remember his name very clearly. Really neat guy, but he had like a really soft-spoken, almost like an effeminate lisp when he talked. He's like, boys, we have... We have a problem here. Boys, what are, you, what are you going to do about this problem? And I don't remember if, I don't think he, he put his hand on, on both of our heads, but I clearly remember that he stood in between us. And he said, we, we, have, we have a problem here, boys, and what are you going to do about that problem? And, and he said, you, you need to ask for forgiveness from one another. And, and, I, and I was like, sorry, sorry for hitting you. And, and Tony said, sorry for slugging you in the face. And, and I remember that, that there, there what the conflict had to be resolved or there could be no relationship. This was my best friend. The conflict had to be resolved before there could be relationship. But the, 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 the indicator is that someone who had authority, someone who had some clout, some, some, some power, someone who was in position had to be in the middle to direct us to be in right relationship. That is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. But he didn't just do it between two squabbling classmates in fifth grade. He didn't just do that. Jesus stepped in and he paid the ransom. He paid the price for all of my sins. Not just that one thing I did for all of my sins. Jesus stepped in and paid the price for all of Tony's sins. And Jesus stepped in and paid the price for all, every one of your sins. He paid the price that you and I simply could not pay. He gave up his own life on that cruel Roman cross. You know what? I, I, I don't think we pause long enough on that word ransom. I don't think we fully understand the price that was actually paid on your behalf and on my behalf. I read a book quite some time ago. I picked it up again and read a portion of it, uh, a large portion of it this week. Little book. Greg Gilbert wrote it. It's one of the series in the Nine Marks uh, books. And, and it just simply is in response to this question. The, the title of the book is, Who is Jesus? It's a great read. And towards the end of that book, chapter 7, Gilbert, who, who the title of the chapter is called Lamb of God, Sacrifice for Man. 
He writes this, and he brings our attention to the significance and the high price of that ransom, of that price of blood being shed on our behalf. Gilbert says this, and I quote, The Roman practice of crucifixion will remain as one of the most gruesome, humiliating, and altogether obscene methods of execution the world has ever known. So horrible was it, in fact, that the sophisticated and the cultured people in Greek and Roman societies would not even utter the word cross in polite company. That was a reviled word, and it referred to an even more reviled and hated form of death. Crucifixion in the Roman world was never a private event. It was always raw, open, and searingly public. That's because its entire purpose was to terrify the masses into submission to the authorities. The Romans had made sure that crosses holding the broken, writhing bodies of the dying or the rotting corpses of the dead frequently lined the main roads into cities. They they even scheduled mass public crucifixions to coincide with civic and religious festivities in order to ensure the maximum number of people would witness the horror. Murderers. Robbers, traitors, and especially slaves were crucified brutally by the thousands all over the empire and always in full public view. The horror of the cross was inescapable in Roman life, and the Roman authorities intended it to be that way. Given the number and the frequency of crosses in Roman society, it's somewhat surprising that ancient accounts of crucifixion are so rare. But then again, nobody wanted much to write about such a thing. And why would they? The cross was a government-sanctioned, even government-encouraged opportunity for executioners to carry out on condemned people their most sadistic brutal, and viciously inventive fantasies. But perhaps not surprisingly at all, the accounts we have of it are generally short. And the the authors usually only allude to the horrors rather than describe them in any detail. You wouldn't want to know, they seem to say. Shredded flesh against unforgiving wood Iron stakes pounded through bone and, and, and racked nerves. Joints wrenched out of socket by the sheer dead weight of the body. Public humiliation before the eyes of family and friends and the world's. That was death on the cross, the infamous stake, as the Romans called it, or the barren wood the maxima mala crux, or as the Greeks spatted out, the storos. Really, it's no wonder no one talked about it. It's no wonder parents hid their children's eyes from it. The storos was a loathsome thing, and the one who died on it was loathsome too. A vile 
criminal whose only use was to hang there as a putrid, decaying warning to anyone else who might follow his example. Gilbert concludes and he says this, that is how Jesus died. And, and at times I, I think that we, we breeze over a ransom that was made, a price that was paid. This morning we draw our attention to what Solus Christus, it teaches us two things. The first one is this very clearly, the exclusivity of Christ. Solus Christus teaches us the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus was speaking in John chapter 14 to his um, disciples, those closest to him. He was teaching them. These, many of them were, were raised to live according to the letter of the law. And Jesus Christ says this, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We believe as a church, and we teach this, and we are not ashamed of this, that there is what only one mediator between God and man, and it is the historical Jesus Christ, literally. In Christ alone and his work can we be saved from our sin and the wrath of God. Christ alone, what, lived a sinless life. No one else did that and died a substitutionary death on the cross. And that is the only remedy to atone for our sins and bring us as, as perfect sinners into right relationship with a perfectly holy God. There is no other means of salvation but Christ alone. We are absolutely incapable of saving ourselves. Therefore, understand this, where Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ and his work is not solicited, it means that the gospel has not been preached there. The gospel has not been presented there. We believe in the exclusivity of Christ and we see it in Solus Christus. The second thing we also see is what the rejection that adds anything to Christ. We reject Anything, any act, any doctrine, anything that anyone teaches, if it adds something to the work of Christ. Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 actually opens and talks about the fact, Acts 2, we know that the Holy Spirit descended. We have this, we have this, this, this cowardly, weak, pathetic Peter who is ashamed and running. And by the time the Holy Spirit descends in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4, he is preaching with such ferocious boldness. Chapter 4 opens that what was 120 people following Jesus in Acts chapter 2, it says that there's 5,000 people that have come to know Jesus in the beginning part of Acts chapter 4. Peter is preaching this, and he says this in verse 12 of Acts chapter 4, and there is salvation in no one else. Put it away. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The truth sets us free. And people back in first century and people today in the 21st century can be set free through acknowledging of that truth. 
What I have found is this. It's very interesting. You can talk about sola scriptura. You can talk about scripture alone in a general sense. Many people say, I don't have a problem with that. You, you, you can talk about um, um, by grace alone and, and people in a general understand, well, yeah, I don't have a problem with grace. Grace is good. I, I don't have a problem with that. You can talk about, about faith alone and many would say, I'm okay with that. Then you mention this word. You mention this one. Oh yeah, by the way, salvation is in only Christ. That's where people will choose to exit. People don't have a problem with God. They don't have a problem. You can mention, you can mention the scriptures. You can mention grace. You can mention faith. But when they get to this word here, that's where they, ha- that's where they get uncomfortable. The reason is this. The question always inevitably is asked. You're telling me that if there's an innocent man in the jungles of Africa who has acknowledged God, acknowledged the reality of God in some form, and has put their faith in the acknowledgement of, of that God in some form. You're telling me because they've never heard the name of Jesus. You're telling me that they've never learned about his miraculous virgin birth that was announced by angels. You're telling me that if there's an innocent man or a woman in the jungles of Africa and they've never heard about, they've never read, they've never been told about Jesus living a sinless life and unjustly, being tried, convicted, and crucified on that cruel Roman cross, buried in a borrowed tomb, and rose again three days later. You're telling me if there's an innocent man in the jungles of Africa who's never specifically trusted in the full finished work of Jesus and confessed him as Lord and Savior, you're telling me that they will not go to heaven, but they will go to an eternity Separated from God in hell? That's what you're telling me? Because someone hasn't uttered the word Christ? That's what you're telling me? Yes. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's where people have a problem. And the problem exists, what, in the question itself. What about the innocent man in the jungles of Africa? What? What does the word of God say? There is no innocent man or woman in the jungles of Africa. Romans chapter three says, all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. And that there's one name by which men may be saved. And it is the name Jesus. You, you have to realize that that's, that's tough. Like, that's kind of hard truth. Like, you guys, man, you're pretty... That is hard, radical, full truth of the gospel. Every single belief system says that we have to do something with the hopes of heaven. And Jesus Christ is the only one who what, stretched out on that cross, nailed to that cross, cried out, it is finished. So rather than us having to do something or anyone trying to do something, Jesus Christ says, done. It's done. It's in his work alone. Do you, do you realize like what we do as a church? Do you realize that we support missionaries? Literally 15, what, 20, 30 minutes ago, you, you put money into a plate that 
that went by you and that part of those monies will be what packaged up and sent over. We support families, literally. And hundreds of people, it has taken hundreds of people to send one family to the mission field. It has taken thousands upon thousands of dollars. And we have people that are serving in in remote parts of little tiny islands in Indonesia. We have families that are serving the Lord in Africa. We have families that are serving the Lord in, in ridiculously dangerous places in the Middle East. We have people serving the Lord in the Brazilian rainforest. We have missionaries who have decided to leave their, their families here and leave the comforts of their home. We have missionary families, like we saw yesterday with the seven-year-old, our little seven-year-old niece who celebrates a birthday by herself in another continent. You're saying we do all of those things? Why? Because there's one message that must be communicated to everyone in the entire world. That message is what? Solus Christus. It is about them being presented with the full weight and work of what Jesus and only Jesus could do on the cross. It's a lot of resources. Why? Because they understand that there is salvation only in Christ. Do you realize that missionary years ago, they would literally, they would pack up their belongings in a coffin. They they put their own belongings in a coffin as they were, what? As they sailed over to remote pieces and parts of the globe. Why? Because when they died, they would ship their own body back in that same coffin. Why are people dedicated like that? Why do do you give and sacrifice? Why? Because there's a message here that we, we we better understand the full weight. Now we are on we are on mission. We are on mission as a church right here. We we have a clear vision. What? That we build relationships so that God is glorified. Lives are transformed through the gospel. I'll tell you what, as we are on mission, you better not try to get around anything else other than salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. A lot of times people would love to hear a message that isn't like that difficult, isn't that tough. So let's just water this down. Let's try it to be a little bit so that people will accept it. And no, no, no. Salvation, what does does John the Baptist, he sees in in John chapter one, verse 29, he sees Jesus walking towards him. And he says, behold, he says, look, look. There is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which means there is no one else. So today, as we are reminded of a basic core doctrine, a pillar of our faith, may we have a fresh reminder and renewal in our hearts about what Christ has done in paying ransom that we couldn't pay. What Christ and who he is, as he stands as a mediator with, with what? His hand on either. And draws us perfectly, perfect sinners into a right relationship with a perfectly holy God. That, that is a doctrine that we can shout about, thank the Lord for, speak of, and pray. God, give us the strength to hold to that core doctrine, solus Christus. Father, we love you.
We thank you for loving us. God, we need your strength to be obedient, to speak the full weight, the full truth of the finished work of Jesus. We are so undeserving. And we thank you. God, help us as we communicate that to those in our community and those surrounding us, that we would do this well. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand with us, please.